0: All right, y'all, well, here it is, the last week of Acts. And uh, we've been doing this for about nine months. With the exception of, I think, two weeks, we've been working through the book of Acts through all of 2017, and this is our last message. Next week, we're gonna start a brand new series called Proverbs, uh, Wisdom in Dizzying Times. And we're gonna take the next seven weeks and look at some different issues and really try to contrast how the people of God look to the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of the world to deal with those particular issues. So that kicks off next week, and I hope you'll join us for that. But for now... Uh, we're going we're to review this book that we've spent the last nine months studying. Uh, here's what Samuel Johnson says. He says, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. Now, for some of you, you were here for the whole series. In fact, was anybody... I, don't, I think the answer to this is probably no. Was anybody here for every week of this series? Wow, wow. We got to find something free to give you. I don't know what, but... <laughs> I wasn't even here for every week of this series, so that is absolutely great. There was one person at the 9 a.m. service, so so far three people have made it through all uh, 40 or so weeks of this, which is really cool. Most of us weren't here. and That's understandable. Um, Some of you have just... You know, join us. some of you, this is your very first week with us, and what we're gonna do is kinda recap the, some things and try to say, okay, if we've kind of gotten into the weeds throughout these last nine months, what's the big picture? What was the big picture thing that God was trying to teach us as the people of Gateway through this study of the book of Acts? So that's what we're gonna try to do. And so what I've done is come up with my best attempt at a summary sentence for the book of Acts, okay? So if I were to try to boil down what we've learned and what we've seen, here's my summary sentence. The gospel is unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise that requires a response, provides new power, and challenges our comfort. That's my best attempt at a summary sentence of the whole 28 chapters of the book of Acts. The gospel is unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise that requires a response, provides new power, and challenges our comfort. So what we're going to do this morning is really just kind of look word by word, sort of phrase by phrase at that sentence and how we saw it in the book of Acts. So we're not going to really work through a passage like we typically would. We're going to put a lot of the passages from Acts where we've seen these things on the screen and hopefully try to remind you or maybe even teach you for the first time uh, what this book here was all about, all right? So let's, let's pray and then we'll dive into that. Father in heaven, uh, I am so thankful to you for your word and how you have inspired it and breathed it out so that we might be formed and shaped more into the image of your son. And I pray now that you would use your word and our time uh, reflecting on it, God, to, to grow us and change us. Help us to be people who love more like you do, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So first, the gospel is unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise, it's news. That's the first thing that we wanna highlight is that the gospel is unstoppable news. And we saw this actually in verse eight which we read just a moment ago which in Acts chapter one verse eight it says this, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples before he ascends and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus calls his people witnesses. Now think about what a witness is. I've served on a jury before and when I served on a jury, there were witnesses that would be called and witnesses were called to present what they saw and what they heard and what they experienced. They were not called to give advice. Hey, what do you think should be done to the defendant? (laughs) No one asked that. They were not there to give their opinion. They were to give the facts of what they saw. And so Jesus says, listen, something has happened in the world. Namely, I have died and risen again, and I'm going to ascend to my Father, and I'm coming back, and in the meantime, your call is to be my witnesses, to share the news of what's happened. And he actually says my witnesses, right? So the news we're sharing is news about Jesus witnesses share news they don't share advice so first from the very beginning of the book we see the gospel is unstoppable news but news of what okay that takes us to our next thing the gospel is unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise this is something that i saw in a newer way uh, going through the book of acts and teaching it the great thing with teaching is you always get to learn more just because you have to figure out what is this all about. And there was a, this, this particular theme is something that came up that I hadn't seen really before, but I kept seeing it in all of the different uh, messages that Peter and Paul and other people that were speaking about the Lord Jesus, they all kept referencing that this was a fulfillment of a promise, that actually this, new, this thing that looks new, Christianity, is actually something really, really old. Right? And I, I shared with you the illustration of uh, the Simon game. Uh, some of you know that Simon game? It's round, and it's got the four colors, and, you know, it go beep, beep, boop, boop, boop. And you have to memorize the code, you know, and you have to repeat what it does, remember? And, I, and about a year ago, I got that for our family. I brought it home from Bed Bath & Beyond, and my kids were like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. This is so new. They're <laughs> like, you know, I had this when I was a kid. Like, this isn't new. This thing that seems new is actually really Old And that's the same thing that that all of this, this new, oh my gosh, look at what God's doing in the world, is actually just the fulfillment of the old promises he'd made in the Hebrew scriptures. Here's how these preachers talk about this throughout the book of Acts. Here's what Peter says in Acts 3. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled... Moses said the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. These speakers went out of their way to say hey this isn't something new this isn't some new fringy thing this is the fulfillment of everything God's people have been looking forward to. Here's what it says in Acts 13 and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises, and that's what they kept announcing. This is the fulfillment of something. God's been working on this for a long, long time. Here's how Paul describes it in Acts 26. He says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. This thing that looks new is really actually quite old. Because the gospel is the unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise. Now what does that unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise do? What does it seek to accomplish? What does it seek to change in the people who hear it? Okay, well, that continues our sentence. The gospel is unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise that requires a response. The first thing the gospel does is it requires a response. It it challenges you to change. It challenges you to do something. Now, what we saw throughout the book was that everywhere the gospel went, there was kind of this common refrain, some believed, some did not, some wanted to know more, right? So people are always responding, but there's a few places where where the listeners come and go, oh my gosh, what should we do? There's actually this place, the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost, he's told about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Hebrew promises. And the people, it says, are cut to the heart. And they go, oh, what should we do? What response would be appropriate, Peter? And look at what Peter says. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, a similar thing happens. What do we do? Chapter 3, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, this, this verse actually is a great description of what repentance means. Right, you maybe hear the word repent, and if you've been around church, or if you're a Christian, you go, okay, I get that. I get." But that's not a word you hear outside church very much. Repent, what are you talking about? So, so let me just explain this word. The word repent literally means to change your mind. But in, in a Hebrew way of understanding the world, you're not just a mind. You're not just a brain on a stick. You're a whole person, right? And so to change your mind means to change your whole way of living about something, your whole way of thinking, your whole way of operating. It's, it's kind of the idea of doing a 180-degree turn, right? So, so it imagines that as sinners, we are walking away from God. And we're walking toward, maybe it's our maybe it's our the things we love more than God, maybe it's all kinds of stuff. We're just not interested. God's back there. We're walking away from him. Repentance is turning around, having this change of mind, and turning back. Do you see that? Repent, therefore, and turn back. In other words, come back to the God who you've been walking away from. That's the appropriate response. Now, who is commanded to do this? Just the religious people, just the irreligious people. Who, Who is supposed to have this response? Well, Paul tells us the answer to that in Acts 17. Here's what he says there. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, you're gonna stand someday before Jesus, who's risen from the dead, in light of that, you are commanded to repent. Notice how broad that is. Now he commands. He doesn't just suggest. He doesn't encourage. He commands all people everywhere. <laughs> Do you get how broad this is? Like this is big. You are commanded to turn around from your God-belittling ways and turn toward God. All people everywhere are commanded to do this. Here's what Paul says to King Agrippa in Acts 26. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He said, When I when, when God got a hold of my life, I, I obeyed him. I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What did Paul declare? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their. Repentance. So if the gospel is good news that requires a response, that response is repentance. And if we look at all those different verses, here's some of the things that we see that that are required in order to, why repentance is required, okay? Repentance is required first for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Peter had said. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe the first thing that we have to change our mind about is admitting that we're sinners. See, I think we live in a, in a culture, and we live in a time when we, we know we're not perfect, but we don't think we're bad, right? Like, I'm not perfect, but fundamentally, deep down, we're good, that's what we wanna think, right? And so if you went to people and you said, you know what, I, and you started using words like the words we, we sing in the, you know, I'm a wretch, I'm a worm, I'm evil. People go, no, 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 you're not. You're good, right? This is like last night, uh, my my aunt, uh, who's from Colorado, was in town, and she was talking about um, how she got to meet Todd Helton. Todd Helton was one of the best uh, players who played for the Colorado Rockies, and I mentioned that, man, he had such a good left-handed swing, and one of my daughters, who knows that I played college baseball, said, but, Dad, you had a really good swing, too, and I said, "Not." that good. And she said, no, no, you had a great swing. I said, I did have a great swing, but he had an even better swing. And she's like, no, 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 you, you, you really, it, you were as good as him. And I'm like, he played in the major leagues for 15 years. I'm not as good as him. No, 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 you are, right? And it was like, sweetie, I love you, and I appreciate that, but you're wrong. <laughs> you're not correct, right? And, and that's kind of the response we get if we were to tell people, I'm evil, I'm a worm, I'm a wretch. No, 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 you're not. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You need to repent. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And if you repent, here's the good news sins are forgiven. If you can't acknowledge that you're a sinner, if you can't acknowledge that you've broken God's law, if you can't acknowledge your spiritual adultery, you can't be forgiven. So repentance is the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance also tells us that our sins will be blotted out. That's what he said, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. But not just the removal of the bad stuff. Actually, what happens with repentance, we're told in Acts, is the presence of the good stuff. Look at what it said again in Acts 3. It said that repentance is required that times of refreshing may come. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Don't you need refreshment? Aren't you worn out? Yeah. How do you experience refreshment? By repentance, by agreeing with God. God, I need your help. God, I need to see things the way you see it repentance is also required as we said because the risen Jesus will judge the world you will give an account it's destined for man to die once and after that the judgment scriptures declare and so repent and repentance is required to turn to God in faith that's what it is right you can't say well I'm turning to God I'm building my life on God I just never repent that's impossible right repentance is the way that you turn to God we, we have an idea of this even as we think about our wedding vows. I'm going to do a wedding next week, and part of the vows will be this, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others. What is that saying? That's saying, I'm going to turn away from all other options. I'm not gonna go into a a covenant or a sexual or an emotional kind of relationship like I have with my spouse with anyone else. I'm gonna be faithful to my spouse and her or him alone. Right, and when we come to the Lord in repentance, that's what we're saying. We're saying, I'm gonna forsake all others, and God, I want you to be my one true spouse. That's what we're doing. The gospel is, is unstoppable news. It requires a response. Well, here's the good part, is when we repent, there's also now a new power because the gospel provides new power. It's unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise that requires a response and provides new power. And the power comes in the form of the Holy Spirit. We're told about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts more than 60 times. So think about this. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Do the math. It means over twice per chapter is re- some kind of reference to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, to- we're told, the Holy Spirit has come to give us new power. Look at what Jesus says in Acts chapter one, verse eight, what we read a moment ago. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll receive a new power. We've said throughout this series that, that God has come not just to make us kind of marginally improved, but to make us new, to give us a whole new strength, a whole new power. Here's how Daryl Bach, a commentator we've quoted throughout the series, here's what he said about it. He said, the gospel doesn't just provide forgiveness, but also gives the power to live in the kingdom. Right, because think about this. If you say, I'm gonna forsake all others and just live for God, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm gonna live a life of love. I'm gonna live a life of generosity. I'm gonna live a life of forgiveness. I'm gonna live a life of patience. I'm gonna live a life of self-control. I'm gonna live a life of courage and humility. Really? You are? How? Have you been able to do that up to this point? The best predictor of future success is past success. You've failed. That's what you're admitting when you say you're a sinner. How are you going to do it? A new power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now you're able to love in a way that you can. And now you have goodness and kindness. This is why all those fruits of the Spirit are a description of the new power that we have through him. So the gospel is unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise that requires a response, provides new power, and challenges our comfort. See, up to this point, you you would hear everything, and you'd go, man, the gospel sounds amazing. Who could ever say no to it? Right? Think about this. I mean, I guess you got to admit that you're a sinner. That's kind of uncomfortable. That bruises your ego a little bit. But once you're kind of over that, like you get forgiveness of sins. You get times of refreshment. You get all this new power. I mean, like who wouldn't want this? Wow. But here's what we saw in the book of Acts. The gospel doesn't just offer all this fulfillment, though it does, but it also challenges the idols that we have. Because the, the the book of Acts has shown us there's all these all others that we're supposed to forsake, right? Forsaking all others, but we kind of like all, our all others. Life's comfortable with all these other things that we attach to, our financial power, our status, our comfort, our, you know, whatever it is. We love that stuff. And so when the gospel comes in and challenges it, there's a confrontation. It's difficult. Ugh, what do I do with, with that? And so what we saw throughout the book of Acts was lots of tension, and lots of even pain and difficulty, even violence because of this. I think about the riot that we looked at in Ephesus in Acts 19, right, where you had all these people that had turned away, they had forsaken all others and were coming back to Christ and because they came to Christ, they decided, you know what, I had been worshiping Artemis, this little statue, and I need to get rid of her. I need to take her out of my home and I'm not buying any new ones. And so many people had done this in Ephesus that the Silversmith Association, got together and said, we got a problem here. Our business is drying up. We don't have any, like, what are we going to do? Like, no one's buying our stuff anymore. And actually a riot broke out because of it. Why? Because the gospel challenges our comfort. Does it kind of at a social level. It also does it individually. Here's how it describes uh, the Apostle Paul's interaction with a Roman leader named Felix. In Acts 24, after some days... Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix was alarmed. Why was Felix alarmed? Because the gospel challenges our comfort. Paul had just been talking about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment and his need to repent and that challenges our comfort. So some people are challenged just by the nature of the gospel saying, hey, build your life on Jesus and nothing else. And so I want to tell those of you who right now are feeling challenged by that, really? You're telling me that I, I can't find my identity in anything else? i got to center my life on Jesus. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Don't run from that. Don't run from that. That's the place of life in this age and eternal life in the age to come. Don't run from that. So the gospel challenges that kind of comfort. But the thing that I saw in this book, probably more than any other thing that I, that I saw this time in going through it, was how the gospel challenges our comfort related to horizontal relationships, particularly the example in, throughout this book is the relationships between Jew and Gentile. I was challenged by how the gospel says that when Jesus died and rose, he did it not just to bring us into relationship with him vertically, but into relationship with one another horizontally, even across all these barriers that are common, especially ethnicity and race. we just saw that over and over and over again in this book of Acts is that the gospel comes to connect us to God vertically and to unite us to one another horizontally. Think about how we saw this. We looked at at, at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, you have this unbelievable miracle where the, the church is praying. They're saying, God, would you work? God, would you come? And the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he descends on them as tongues of fire and he gives them an ability. Do you remember what it was? What ability did the church have when the Spirit came upon them that they didn't have before? They had the ability to speak in languages they'd never learned. Right, They were at this feast, this Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. All these people from all over the Roman Empire were gathered there and they were hearing in their own language the mighty works of God. These people who had never studied these languages in the power of God all of a sudden had the ability to speak it. And what a lot of commentators point out about that Pentecost moment is that it's the reversal of another moment we see in the scripture at the Tower of Babel. See, in Genesis 11, there's this group of people early on in the history of our world who said we're going to live our life apart from God and we think we're kind of unstoppable if we do that. And God says, oh yeah? And he scatters them. And one of the things he does is he scatters their languages. They said we'll live a life apart from God and he says, no you won't. And then in the gospel what happens is God gives this new ability, this new power. He says, listen, here's what life is like in my kingdom is the, the, the curse of Babel is reversed. And people are brought together in the name of Jesus. We saw this in Acts 6. When in Acts 6, there were all these Greek-speaking widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of bread. They had this kind of system where the widows who were in need, the church would help provide food for them. And some of the Greek-speaking widows go, hey, uh, everyone's forgetting about us. And we saw the the church leadership didn't say, well you just misunderstand it, never mind. We're not gonna pay attention to you. They said, okay, let's take this seriously. And they actually appointed seven Greek-speaking leaders to be able to make sure that they were included. We saw this in Acts chapter 10, when Peter was called to go to the house of Cornelius, this Gentile, and Peter knew, hey, listen, Jews don't ever go into the house of a Gentile. That's how you become unclean. That's how you become icky. I'm clean, they're unclean. I don't do that. And so God appears to him in a dream and multiple times has to tell him, listen, Peter, what I've made clean, don't call unclean. And Peter goes and he crosses that barrier and he crosses that threshold. And he experiences not just relationship, but relationship around a meal with someone that previously he would have thought of as untouchable. Why? Because the gospel doesn't just bring unity with God vertically, it brings horizontal unity among people. We saw it in Acts chapter 13 where there's this, this leadership of the church in Antioch described and we're told, um, I'll, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll turn there. I don't have the verse up there but I'll just look at this. It says, now there were at, in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Barnabas was a Jew, Simeon, who is called Niger, so Simeon's a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene was like North Africa, like Libya kind of area. Manaan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, so he's a guy that grew up around royalty. And Saul, who was a Jewish Pharisee. That's the leadership team of the church in Antioch, why? Because the gospel brings people together who otherwise would not be brought together. We saw this in Acts 15. Acts 15, there was this big controversy that thankfully we've never had in our church, which was a controversy about whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised. We never dealt with that one, but that got dealt with in Acts chapter 15. And uh, some of you, I remember that Sunday, you were probably really uncomfortable as as you heard that we're talking about what today? Um, Yeah, that's what we talked about because that's what the Bible talked about. And in Acts 15, there's this whole discussion Because in Judaism, what happened was if a a Gentile wanted to become Jewish, the first step was they had to be circumcised. And so the question was, if a Gentile wants to become Christian, do they have to be Jewish first? Do they still have to be circumcised? What do we do about that? And the church gathered to talk about it. And I actually remember where I was. I was in Ohio, and I was on a walk, and uh, I was listening. I I wasn't here that Sunday, so a couple days later I was listening on our podcast as Seth preached about it, and I was brought to tears. As I listened to that sermon and walked because Seth talked about how circumcision in all these other cultures was only something that was done for those who were close to royalty. It was this way of saying you're royal and how the Jews were basically saying we're the royal ones. If someone wants to become royal they have to become like us but that actually in the gospel Jesus has circumcised our hearts and he said no you're all part of my royal family. Why? Why? Because the gospel doesn't just bring relationship with God vertically, but it brings us together horizontally. Now, that all sounds so good. Oh, yeah, kumbaya, isn't this great? One big happy global family. But here's the thing. You know this. It doesn't work like that. Because people in power and people with lots of long-standing tradition, they, they don't want that. And so when we say the gospel challenges our comfort, it means it doesn't just challenge our comfort vertically, it it challenges it horizontally, right? Because the thing you see everywhere, over and over and over, is that all these Jewish people are listening to Paul, they're listening to Paul, they're listening to Paul, and then when Paul says, oh, and by the way, this is for the Gentiles too, they're like, out of here. Look at this, in Acts 22. Paul's preaching, he's sharing his story. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What's the next line? Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Whoa. Like that went nuclear fast or you ever have a conversation like that and you're like we just went from zero to 11 like whoa what just happened well here's what just happened in that case paul said gentiles get to be part of this what that's how some people react especially if you're in power and especially if you're comfortable when all of a sudden people are saying hey the gospel needs to unite us and bring some reconciliation what it's uncomfortable Here's how the book finished in Acts 28. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Here's the thing that set them off. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What was it that set them off? What was it that they couldn't stand anymore? What was it they said, we gotta get out of here? It was this idea that Jew and Gentile, in our context, red, black, white, all need to come together. Do we have ears to hear that? See, we love it. When other people are challenged, build your life on God. Come come into relationship with him. We love when that happens. But when we're challenged, that doesn't feel so good. And here's what I just want to encourage us is push into it. Don't run away from it. Don't, it is uncomfortable. It is filled with tension. No church in history has ever nailed it. We're working slowly together to try to embody the kind of gospel that we see. But we, we can't get there if we run from it. The gospel is an unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise. It requires a response, provides new power, and challenges our comfort. But here's the thing. There's one word in that sentence that I haven't talked about yet. Did you notice it? It's this word. Unstoppable. Here's what we see in the book of Acts. This gospel message is unstoppable. And it's not because nothing tries to stop it. All kinds of things try to stop it. And we see a lot of threats that try to stop the expansion of the gospel. And a lot of the threats actually are from within. Think about these lists of threats that came from within the church. You have the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. That's a threat to the church. You have racial injustice with the Greek-speaking widows. That's chapter 6. You have Simon in chapter 8 trying to use God by buying the Holy Spirit. You have chapter 15, the threat of adding to the gospel a circumcision decision. You have chapter 20 uh, that Paul says there's going to be these leaders that are more like wolves than like shepherds. There's lots of dangers that come from within the church, but they don't stop the gospel. Yeah, the church is flawed. Yeah, the church has bad history, but it doesn't stop the gospel. And there's threats from outside the church, right? There's over and over and the temperature just gets hotter and hotter and hotter as the book of Acts goes along where people are persecuting and people are being arrested and people are being killed. And you know what, Paul, who had been the one persecuting people and ended up becoming the one persecuted, ended up giving his life, dying for his faith, do you know what he says in Acts chapter 20? He said this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He goes, my life's not what I build everything on. I build it on Jesus, and as long as I get to honor him, to live his Christ, to die his gain. You can't stop Jesus, and you can't stop his gospel. I heard an amazing story uh, this week that I want to share with you that just so beautifully captures that. I spent some time this week with a church planner from Germany, named Andre, and uh, just a fantastic young guy, and w- he was sharing with me a lot of his story, and we just spent a lot of time together and enjoyed, enjoyed the experience, and he told me this incredible story about how 37 years ago, his mother-in-law uh, was part of a group in Germany. They, they weren't Christians. She wasn't a Christian, but they loved gospel music, like they didn't believe in Christianity, but they, but they liked it as a genre, right? So she's part of this white, German, non-Christian gospel singing chorale, chorale, right? You go, wow, that's a lot of modifiers on that, right? But that's the group she's part of, 37 years ago. And they say, you know what, we love gospel music, let's go on a trip to America and experience gospel music firsthand. And so they come to America, and one of the churches they go to is this church in Gaithersburg that's almost all black and had this unbelievable gospel choir And so she's in the service along with these other Germans who are part of this trip and they hear the gospel there and she becomes a Christian. She gets baptized and she goes back to Germany a Christian. 37 years later, her son-in-law is coming to America to learn from church planters and learn from pastors and do some fundraising and just figure out what he can do because he's about a year away from planting a church in East Germany that was all part of the former communist bloc. And so he's coming to America and he's gonna be in the D.C. area, which is near Gaithersburg. And so his mother-in-law says, hey, you've gotta go to this one church. You've gotta go there and you've gotta meet them. That's where I became a Christian. He's going, I don't know if I'm gonna have time, but okay, I'll, I'll get over there. I'll see what I can do. He reaches out to them. They don't get back to him right away. But eventually, he, he ends up getting invited over to the pastor's house on a Friday night. And he says to the pastor, Hey, this is what happened. I know it's kind of a weird, long story. And the pastor says, I've been here that whole time, and I remember that group. I remember that night. I remember when that happened. He said, Actually, after the Berlin Wall came down, I was invited into East Germany to preach there, this black pastor says. He says, the best night of ministry of my whole life was me preaching to a room full of skinheads in East Germany who all became Christians that night. He said, I love East Germany. And I want to support your church. And by the way, you're preaching this Sunday. That's what he told Andre. And Andre's going, well, uh, I don't have a sermon ready. I've never preached in English. I don't have a suit. Like, what? What am I going to do? And uh, they got all that figured out, and he preaches on Sunday, and he said it was amazing because, you know, everyone's cheering him on as he's preaching, right? you imagine a church like that? <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> that wasn't a dig at you guys. just it it, That's fun when that happens. I've heard. So anyway... So he's preaching, and he just has a great time. And after the service, again, this is this almost all-black church, these four people come up to him, these four white people, and they say, we're part of a gospel group in Germany, and we came to the United States to hear good gospel music, and we happened to come to this church today, and you were preaching. (laughs) Could we talk? Really, like for, like what, you serious? What, What explains that? Here's what explains that. We have an unstoppable gospel. We have an unstoppable God. The gospel is unstoppable news of a fulfilled promise that requires a response, provides new power, and challenges our comfort. That's what the gospel does. And so God works across the most unlikely racial barriers. God works. God works across the most unlikely international travel barriers. God works. And Andre and I were saying, what if one of those four people, what if their son-in-law someday comes to you to help plant a church in Leipzig where you're going to be? How cool would that be? And I wouldn't rule it out. Why? Because God's gospel is unstoppable. That's what we've seen in Acts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your good news. Thank you that you've invited us into it, that we as your people get to now carry that good news through word and deed everywhere we go. Thank you, God, that you have united us to yourself, that we experience this kind of vertical fellowship with you because of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. And God, thank you as well that we experience this horizontal fellowship, that we experience unity in the body of Christ, that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross, admitting that we are sinners in desperate need of grace. Thank you, Lord, that you work and that you move and that we get to be part of your unfinished story. We pray in Christ's name, amen.